Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files. We are a global community, and we need to talk about being a global community and about lifting everyone up. Melinda Gates. She and her husband, Bill Gates, have dedicated billions of dollars and so much of their time through the Gates Foundation to saving lives, following the core belief that all lives have equal value. You know their work to eradicate malaria and polio. But when Melinda Gates turned 50, she dedicated her life's work to women and girls, empowering them, advancing them, and working towards their equality. If you believe in women, you fund things for women. You fund family planning. You fund women's health. The power is in the money. Here's my conversation with Melinda Gates at CNN's American Opportunity Breakfast in New York. So you decided at age 50, this is what I'm going to do. And your thought process was, how do, how do I want to leave the world? Mm. I've read a lot about that. But what I want to know is the personal decision behind it. Your kids, mm. your mother of three, and your dad. Mm. Your dad was remarkable for women in science at a time that that wasn't the norm. Yeah, I think there's something about turning 50, I'll say at least for me, that you start to really think about, your kids start to get a little bit older, you start to think about, you know, what is it, what do I want for this back, what I call the back half of life, and what is it I wanna leave behind? And by the time I turned age 50, I'd been traveling for the foundation for over 15 years, and I've had a huge, enormous privilege to travel many, many, many countries but really a lot of time in the developing world. Mm-hmm. And as I would be coming back from the developing world, I would, I would see so many missed opportunities for women, so many places women weren't empowered. And I would say to myself, if we could only do this, if we could get this far for women. But when I turn the question back on myself and I'd be flying back to the United States, I'd say to myself, but how far are we really in the United States? What can my daughters really expect in their lifetime when I look back at my lifetime on things, how things have changed? And I realized there was more I wanted to do to use my voice and our resources absolutely behind the foundation's mission around poverty. That will always be our core focus, but also around issues that affect affect women in the United States, like diversity, like STEM fields, like these incredible opportunities that we sometimes miss in this country for a whole host of reasons, but a lot of it has to do with bias, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us about a little bit about your dad and the work he did on Apollo missions sure. and what he told you about the women who worked with him? Sure. So my dad worked on the very early Apollo missions, the ones that, the very first one that put, you know, a man on the moon. And my sister and I... Uh, this is you, by the way. Uh, this is me. <laughs> I can't remember first or second grade, Catholic school, all the way through, K through 12. Uh, but my, they put my, my parents put my sister and I in our little jammies, and we'd go over to my dad's friend's house where the engineers were, uh, and we would all watch the television till late at night, mm. fall asleep, watching for that first Apollo mission to go off. 
And what my dad always said, and we'd go to the company picnics of his company in the summer, uh, summer picnics, is his teams were better when he had female mathematicians or engineers on them. And he had to go across the company as the teams would be reforming and make sure he gathered these women onto his teams because he said he knew they were better off. Their end result was better off by having these women. And so I met some of those incredible women along the way, and I had a vision that a woman could be great yeah. in mathematics or in engineering because of my dad. We um, have Megan Smith in the audience. Megan, are you around? Raise your hand. Formerly of Google, who's part of her many missions now, is telling these stories of these hidden figures, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. You were exposed to them. I was never exposed to them, right? And, mm -hmm. and so many women and girls are still not exposed to them today. So she's helping tell those stories. Great. So you also make the argument, um, poverty is sexist. Why is poverty sexist in this country? We know more women live in poverty in the United States and certainly in the developing world than men. Why is it sexist? Well, more women live in poverty in the United States also. So yes, poverty is yes. absolutely sexist. And we're still getting at why that is, but I think one of the reasons we know why that exists is that women still in our country, all over the world, women do more unpaid labor. The hidden tasks at home that we don't talk about helping with homework, getting the lunchbox, making sure the kid is, has the soccer cleats ready to go for the next day, filling out the school forms. Worldwide, women do four and a half hours more of unpaid work than a man in a day. And in the United States, is 90 minutes a day. Think about what you could do with 90 minutes every single day if you weren't doing those <laughs> tasks. And I'm not saying some of those tasks are things we want to do. We want yeah. to care for our loved ones. But some of them, to be honest, are grunt work. And so we need to look at that and recognize it, bring out that hidden bias of who does what in mm -hmm. that second shift when you go home from work. Mm -hmm. We need to recognize it. We need to do things to reduce it. And we, quite frankly, we need to redistribute it in our households. Talk about it in our marriages. And redistribute it and ask our husbands, can you do this piece? Can, I'm realizing these are all the things I do in the right. evening that you're not having to do. How can you help do some of them? Uh, and, and Bill Gates has done that, and we'll Absolutely. get into that in a moment, uh, even when he was CEO of Microsoft. You wrote once, Melinda, that economists estimate the value of unpaid work women do is roughly equal to China's GDP. It's huge. That's unbelievable. Yeah. But it's real. It's real. So Bill starts driving the kids to school at some point. So, yeah. And the other mothers say to their husbands, yeah, so when our youngest started in kindergarten, uh, you know, our house is here, the school's here, and Microsoft is here, just to give you a sense. And I was saying to Bill, my gosh, I'm going to be driving so much every day. And he said, well, I can do some of that. And I said, seriously, you'll do that? And he said, yeah, it's great time to talk to our daughter in the car. Mm -hmm. And so Bill starts driving to school, leaves our house, drops the daughter at school, would drive past the house, go back to Microsoft. While he was CEO of Microsoft, twice a week he did it. Huge buzz and chatter amongst the kindergarten moms. And finally, um, about two weeks in, they sort of sidled up to me and I said, well, what gives? What's up? And they said, we are going home and saying to our husbands, if Bill Gates can drive his kid to school, so can you. And guess what? More husbands started showing up at school, dads. And that's go. the kind of change, to be frank, that we need. It needs to be okay for dads to do some of the mm -hmm. stuff that we take on as women in the United mm -hmm. States. And we have to have those bold conversations, and we got to make it happen. I go to work pretty early in the morning. So usually at this time, I'm anchoring a morning show. So every morning, my husband is with our daughter and our soon-to-be son. 
and uh, <laughs> these kids don't sleep in, so mornings are his. But that time is invaluable. And he told me when he brings her to daycare, it's now about half and half, fathers and mothers dropping them Just off. So I think, I think things are getting change. better. Um, one of the real change makers uh, to truly making it equal for parents and truly giving women equal opportunity in the workforce and to advance is paid leave. And I am so optimistic by what we're seeing in, in Congress in Washington right now because this is not just a, this isn't a partisan issue anymore. It's how you pay for it is partisan, but if it should exist is no longer uh, as divided and as partisan of an issue. You caution, it cannot just be maternity leave. Absolutely, it has to be paid family medical leave. And the reason for that is, is that Mothers and fathers need to take care of their kids. We know if fathers start earlier, the earlier they start, the more involved they are. Mm -hmm. But guess what? At the end of the life, both people in the relationship are going to have older parents who need care. And the woman should take care of her parents, and he should take care of his parents. And so we need paid family medical leave so that it's okay for men and women to take time off from work to care for their loved ones when they're sick or when there's a new baby. And the great thing is that we have five states and the District of Columbia who already implemented this. California, which has been doing it now for 15 years, three out of four dads say they want more time with their children. And when you, when you poll businesses, we say at first, oh my gosh, how can businesses make this work? Businesses do make it work. And after the California policy was passed and they've interviewed people many, many, many times uh, through great surveys, businesses now say, 90% of businesses say, it's a good thing for my employees. I think Google said that when they extended this uh, parental leave, I believe it's 18 weeks, I hope I'm not too off, but the women dropping out of the workforce there was cut in half. Yeah, they were um, one of the first in the tech industry. They have a five-month leave policy, and it's incredibly yeah. flexible, and it's because they want to keep those great female engineers. Uh, Kathy Engelbert is here from Deloitte, and mm -hmm. Deloitte right there, uh, she instituted and led four months, right, Kathy? Um, uh, parent, parental leave, of course. It, family leave, family emphasizing leave. that, not just, not just moms um, and not just new parents. But when you look at the statistics, that's still a rarity. I mean, I'm... Silicon Valley is doing it, the big consulting and professional services firms are doing it, Wall Street will see what happens. 14% of U.S. workers in the private sector now have paid, 14% in 2017, and it's often the people like me that can afford to take unpaid leave that, that get it paid, and it's often the workers that cannot afford to take it that, that don't have it. Um, should this be government mandated, government funded, or should it be on companies to do it? It should be across the board. It should be private companies, it should be states, and it should be at the federal level. And there's no reason in this day and age not to have it. You know, we passed as a country an uh, unpaid leave in 1993, and then we got stuck. We thought, oh, that's enough. Well, every single developed country in the world has paid leave. It's and us and Papua New Guinea. Exactly. So do we want to be on par with Papua New Guinea? I don't think so. And why are we putting the burden on women or even the burden on men when they have a sick parent to figure out how to make this work? Mm -hmm. Think about a single mom with one or two children. 
and she has she has a child, and then she has another baby, and she get she has to cobble together maybe if she's lucky two days of unpaid leave and go back to work. I can tell you what it feels like after having a baby for, after two days later, and you're still trying to nurse. Yeah. It doesn't work. So we need to write this this wrong in society and make business and family equally important. We value our families, so let's economically value that as a country. So there are a number of proposals out there right now. I want to ask you about one specifically because it's getting a lot of buzz right now. This is the Family Act. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it is proposed by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of, of New York here. The proposal is 12 weeks paid time off for new moms and new dads and for employees with serious uh, medical conditions among their family members, taking care of sick parents. It's paid for by a tax, a tax on the employee and and on the employer. Sheryl Sandberg, as you know, just came out and endorsed it. Mm -hmm. Are you behind this legislation? Is this specific legislation the right one? Well, as as a foundation representative, I can't speak about specific legislation. Um, But I will say this. I think whatever piece of legislation you pass needs to have incredibly good bipartisan support. And I think there are different ways to do that. Uh, The specific number of weeks that you do is important. Also, you can tier it. So, which I think is would be more maybe financially viable for some people um, who look at it. So you can tier it so maybe a low-income worker gets 90% wage replacement, whereas a high-income worker maybe gets more like 50% wage replacement. So I think there are ways to look at it that you I, can I nuance this. I haven't heard that this. a lot. That's interesting. Yeah, some of the states have done a little bit more progressive policies in that regards. And so I think we need to think about what's the right balance to make sure we, we do the right thing for families and the right thing for businesses. But I think this initial piece of legislation is a great starting point for the conversation. And I think I trust Congress to craft the right piece of bipartisan legislation over time. Does it happen in this in this administration, in, this, in the next three years? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of surprising things going on in this administration, so I think it's pretty hard to predict. But we know from a great Pew research that there's incredible public support for mm-hmm. it and there's good bipartisan mm-hmm. support. So it's in the hands of Congress to do something, and I hope they will. So someone that has the president's ear in the White House every day who is a parent, Ivanka Trump, this has been her signature, right? I mean, this has been what she's talked about. Um, She's proposed maternity and paternity leave. Do you see Ivanka Trump as an advocate in the White House for this? I think she's doing her best. She certainly cares about families and she cares about women. So I think she is trying to carry the water on this. And how far she gets remains to be seen. So what would you say to her? You're sitting with her? I have talked to her about this. And we talked early on about the fact that it shouldn't be just maternity leave. It should be paid family medical leave. Are you the one who got the change? I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. We've had some conversations about it. I pointed out some of the research to her, and she went and got herself knowledge. She's very bright, very, very bright, and very committed. And she went and got that research and talked to a lot of people about this. So um, I think the fact that it's paid family medical leave is a great thing. Women in tech, Mm. uh, your whole, I mean, your family, from your father on, your entire career at Microsoft, you have been a woman in tech. And this is a moment of reckoning for the tech industry, for Silicon Valley right now, no question. The fallout from sexism at Uber and a host of companies, memos about biological differences in men and women and their ability or, or perceived inability at their job as a result, um, sexual misconduct in the VC world, I mean, you name it. You wrote a really eye-opening piece last week mm-hmm. in Recode about all of this, and you said that you're left both outraged 
but a little bit optimistic. Mm. So let's let's dive into both. Yeah. Well, I'm outraged that we're sitting in 2017 and these issues are going on and going on so deeply in the tech industry. You know, when I look at the tech industry, these are amazing jobs. They're exciting jobs. They're innovative. We're creating new things in the tech industry. They're great paying jobs. So it should be a place that women want to go in droves. But the fact that young girls and women aren't wanting to go into that industry, I mean, we know the numbers. We know that the number of computer science graduates has gone down since the time I was in college. It's 18%. It's 18%. And the time I was in college, it was 37%. We were on the rise, just like law and medicine. Look at law and medicine now. You have droves of women yeah. going in. And women are saying, I don't want to go into that field. And so it means there are problems and we need to fix it. So I'm outraged that's going on. I'm optimistic, though, because I think that we're finally seeing the transparencies coming forward. You're seeing a cacophony of voices speaking about this, women naming the truth, not being shamed now for naming the truth, saying, no, this is what is going on and this is what's happening. And you're finally starting to see some action by the industry. It's not enough, but it's the beginnings of what will work to start to change the industry. By the way, I should have noted at the beginning, we're going to open it up for questions at the end, so please, please have your questions ready. Um, the, the, the problem is, Melinda, why did we get here? Why was this allowed to happen? I mean, this would never be allowed to happen at my company. Mm -hmm. This would never be allowed to happen in so many industries. And, and, and this isn't isolated to one big company in Silicon Valley. Why did we get here? And what are the lessons from that? Well, some bad things have gone on in the media industry. Absolutely. I mean, that, that stuff's gotten unearthed in the last 18 months. I suppose I can only speak for, for That's my right. company. That's right. Exactly. But it seems like so widespread across Silicon Valley. Well, and so I want to say this. There are some great players in this. There are companies who are absolutely trying to do the right thing and are committed to doing the right thing. But again, I think it's what happens is you get these hidden biases. We don't talk about what's going on. I would be in small groups with women in the Valley, and it would I'd be there to talk about business issues or investment yeah. issues, and it would just start to leak out. I couldn't go to a meeting without it coming out. Really? And so I think it's, it's hidden. And until something is brought to the light of day and examined, you can't get at it. And so one of, nobody knows, there's no single one reason the industry got to this point. But one of the things that we look back in the data and see is that at the time when the industry flipped, when I went into computer science as a young girl in high school, you had a lot of games that were not genderized. But all of a sudden, when games started to become very genderized, you started to see the downtick, this huge falling off of women wanting to go into computer science. Because the games were all shoot 'em up tough, and NFL football. And so women kind of go, well, I'm not interested in that stuff. So they started to back out. And then when you get where it's a very male, young, male-dominated industry, mm -hmm. uh, you get some bad behavior and it reinforces itself. Mm -hmm. And I think you also get the VAC industry that doesn't help either because most of the money then is held in the hands of yeah. men and young men and it reinforces itself. Today, of VC partners, only 6% today are women, 6%. And of all companies that get funded out of the VC industry, yeah. only 3% of female-led companies get funded. That is crazy. So you said, and you wrote, I'm putting my money where my mouth is on this one. What are you doing? 
Yeah, so I'm working kind of on three levels. I'm working both on the what we call leaky pipeline from mm -hmm. K through 12, working on new pathways for women to get into computer science. We can talk about that. I'm working on some of the environmental issues, using my voice about the environment for women and how do we make that right. And then enabling, I can use my resources. I can put down, I can look for smart business opportunities, not you know some a charity case to, to fund a woman, smart business opportunities, and I can put my resources down. So, there so two, in the VC space, you're doing this right now because you saw those numbers and were appalled. Exactly. And so there's a great uh, set of investors, uh, Teresa Gao and Jennifer Fonstad, they run Aspect part, Venture Partners. I'm putting money down with them. Mm -hmm. Of the companies they've chosen for their fund, 40% are women-led. Mm. And I'm going to do that in several other places in the next 18 months. Because I think our money, moving money, is what will move the industry for women. Sure. And you know what's even crazier than women? 3% of women-led businesses getting funding, less than 1% of people of color get funding from the VC industry. Less than 1%. Wow. You want to, so I don't know about you, but when I sit around a table and we're talking about innovations, when I sit around at the foundation, we're talking about innovations, the best products and the best ideas come when you have a diverse set of people at the table. People who are from all walks mm -hmm. of life, different backgrounds, men, women, people of color. We know, we have great research now that that makes better products. And when you think about where computing is going for the world, I mean, tech, tech is invasive. It's in all of our lives. Don't you want the people who are sitting behind that programming it to be people who have diverse points of view, who think about older people, who think about babies, who think about young kids and how they do it, to think about how it might work in a place like India or Bangladesh or in a borough outside of New York, not just in Manhattan? You need that diversity. So when you read the, for lack of a better term now, Google memo, the mm. Google engineer memo, I have read a lot about you and I haven't yet seen your reaction. So what did you think, Melinda? I, when I read that Google memo, I didn't know whether to be sad or to be outraged. And I think the sadness came first, the sadness to see that kind of point of view and the outrage to see, to see that we're writing about women in this day and age. And then I didn't speak out on it because I thought enough other people were. Uh, and I thought, you know, Susan Majicki's piece, I thought was incredibly oh, strong from right inside the company and her personal view on it and how she thinks about it through the lens of a mother also and her daughter's eyes. To me, that was the most pointed piece and nothing else needed to be said for me. I wasn't, there wasn't anything else I could add to that. So it's as if you read my list of questions because my, oh. next, my next question, when I read that piece, I read it more as a mother than a journalist because she starts out and she's taught, I mean, and remember, she runs YouTube inside of Google, right? And she responds yeah. with an anecdote about her daughter. Yeah. So her daughter comes up to her after this is all the buzz and says, Mom, is it true that there are biological reasons why there are fewer women in tech and leadership? And, and she ends it by simply saying, no, no. it's not. No. Did your children uh, come to you, ask you about it? 
Not that specific one, but look, we talk about this stuff at the dinner table all the time. My kids are probably sick of me talking about it in some way. I remember one of our spring breaks where we were away as a family. It just kept coming up over and over again. And interestingly enough, driven by a conversation about my son and Rory. his friend, my son Rory, who is now a senior, but at the time was a sophomore in high school, and his friend who, was go- who is going into this industry. And we had so many conversations uh, with he and his friend and my daughters around this topic. Mm-hmm. So it's in, you could just say it's in the ethos in our house and in the water. And do you know who first gave me the article when it first came out oh. about that Google memo? Was my husband. He said, make sure you see this. What did he say? He said, you're not, he basically said, you're not going to believe this. And um, we leave articles, sometimes we forward articles to one another on email. If we're on a vacation, sometimes we leave it out. We were on a trip together and it had come out. And so he literally left me a post-it note because he was flying off somewhere else and said, I think you're going to want to see this. And then, of course, we talked about it on the phone that night. I, could, I just couldn't believe it. And he couldn't believe it. No. I mean, Microsoft's trying to do all the right things. I've talked to Satya many times and the senior leadership at Microsoft. Just in the last year, I actually went out and spoke with a group of women about how well is Microsoft actually doing on this. Because Satya is so deeply committed, the CEO and the company, they know that. But how are they actually doing? And, um, you know, I think he and many others want to get at these issues and make changes. And, and I think um, it's going to take all of us. And I think it's going to take the leaders speaking out. And quite frankly, not just leaders in the industry. The VC community also needs to clean up its act. And senior leaders in that community need to speak out and need to create change. Perhaps because they are not public companies, they don't have the name recognition. Right. As a Google or a Microsoft, they get a little bit of a pass on it, do you think, Melinda, in the headlines? Sure. And I think that shouldn't be. I think we need more transparency in that industry. I think they also fund what they know. And so today they know male, white, Caucasian, in a hoodie, looks like a geek, comes from an Ivy League or equivalent school. I mean, that's their funding criteria. And I think you could probably have some pretty more wide funding criteria than that. We know that in the VC companies where a woman is partnered, they're Uh, is on the partnership team making investment decisions. She has a hard time if she's alone, Mm -hmm. but if she has another guy with her, another Mm -hmm. woman who also wants to fund women-led businesses, she's twice as likely to fund a woman-led business. So we just, we need to change, to be honest, the pattern recognition. You know, I just watched something that Mary Robinson said. She was, you know, the first president of Ireland. Um, And she said, you know, when I came into that role, I didn't look like anybody had done it before me, but I had the confidence to know that I was going to do the job differently than the men who'd done it before me. And I was okay with that. And she said, I knew I had some things to learn. And I think the same is true in the tech industry. We have to not use that same five criteria. We have to say there's five and five more and five more kinds of criteria of what, what people look like, the diverse way they look, they act, the businesses they think about. The criteria has to look different, and they have to be allowed to do it in a different way. But guess what? They can make innovative product, and those can be smart decisions for investors to invest behind them. When Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox, uh, sat in this chair just a few Mm. months ago, she talked about being a black female CEO of a Fortune 500 company and how so many people around her would look at her or, or think that that made her, especially in her early days coming up, you know, she was the only black woman in these groups, right? And that it would make her uh, less confident or uneasy. And she said, it gave me all the confidence in the world because I knew my ability and I knew what I could do. And I was different. And look at the talent and look at all that she has, has brought to the She's table. She's been amazing. 
What about you? Did you, I mean, you had a very long, uh, very successful career at Microsoft. Did you experience sexism ever in your career inside or outside the company? Sure. All the way through. I mean, college. Well, college, first of all, I was one of the few female coders. So you experience it there from, you know, your peers and the professors. Then you go into business. And it wasn't as bad, to be honest, inside of Microsoft. Because if you got into the company, if you crossed that interview hurdle, they knew you were good. So I didn't face it. I, I faced it a little bit inside the company, but not very much. But I faced it out in industry. When I would go out to represent Microsoft at at things. Uh, yeah, at various industry conferences, people would, you know, but, but here's the thing. I always knew in high school, I had to prove myself. I had an older sister in school uh, and I was following in her footsteps. And so when you're a younger child, you look up and say, how, how am I going to do it differently? How am I going to prove to my teachers that I'm not who my sister was? <laughs> and she was great, but she, you know, she had, they had a certain view of her. But you were greater. Uh, yeah. And so how am I going to, how am I going to convince them? And and my trick was just to convince them in the first class, you know, convince them right away. So I still walk in places with Bill. And people, first of all, they assume he's the smartest person in the room, almost no matter whether it's a man or a woman who walks in, right? But as soon as I open my mouth, you can sometimes look at the person's face and they're kind of like, wow, she knows something too. Yeah. And I kind of just think it's kind of so funny. So Melinda Gates gets that? Yeah, I get that in certain, in certain places, you know, that we go in and meet with business leaders, let's say in Africa, right? We all have hidden bias. Men and women have hidden bias. Mm -hmm. So I have to look at even my own bias, even inside the foundation where I go to to a meeting. I have to look at, you know, do I expect that the women are as credible as the men? Do I expect that someone of a different skin color is as credible as men? And what am I doing with my own hidden bias that self-reinforces that or doesn't? And so I think we all have to look at that. And women have to, I do love Sheryl Sandberg's words, lean in. And I don't mean just sit at the table. You have to sit at the table and lean in. But lean into those uncomfortable situations. I tell that to my kids. When it's uncomfortable, lean in. You're better than that. You're better than the bias that that person's bringing to the situation. You know yourself. I also think that um, we have to recognize the importance of work at home and the work of mothers and fathers and not just the work they do, right? So you were working at Microsoft as you were raising your kids as well, but my mom tells a story about, and she now has a doctorate and she's a psychologist, but when she was raising me when I was young, she would go to dinner parties with my dad, who was a litigator, and people would say, hi, what do you do? And the moment she said, well, I'm raising two children, they would walk away. Mm -hmm. And then she would say, oh, but I also teach English as a second language, or oh, I'm also teaching at the University of Minnesota. And then they would want to talk to her. And I can tell you the hardest part of my day and the most rewarding part of my day is when I'm home. It is much harder than being at work, being, you know, raising a young child. Definitely. And I just, I wonder if you have any thoughts about the respect we need to give to parents. I think we need to give a lot more respect. We need to, look, we care about our kids. And if you want to disarm an older man in a cocktail conversation, you ask him about his kids. And guess what? They want to talk about their kids. But what they're so used to doing in those conversations is you go in and you talk about your business because somehow it's part of your worth. But on the last day of their life, what are they going to care about the most? As Warren Buffett says, 
They're going to care about whether they're loved by their family and friends. And so we have to make it okay as a society to talk about both. Talk about our kids who we value and the struggles at home and what we're trying to teach them. Yeah. Talk about what we're proud of in business and what we're trying to move forward in our economy and in our world. Both have to be okay because both are part of our lives. There is hope out there despite all that we're seeing going on, especially in Silicon Valley right now. Some of that hope is displayed beautifully from a young woman named Ashwara. You met mm. her recently at the University of Washington. I think we have a clip. Uh, let, let's play it for you. I came from a very small village in India and I've always experienced a lot of really hard things that I that not a lot of, you know, eight-year-olds want to see. So my background has definitely given me that, you know, mentality to change the world. With technology, I feel like that's really possible. So me and my sister are 10 years apart, and one of the regrets that I have is I wish I got into computer science earlier. There's a lot of online learning activities for kids to learn computer science. So I'm like pushing her to try those out and, you know, see if she likes it or not. The visual that I got when I was first starting out, the typical male programmer in the hoodie sitting in the basement and playing video games. I think we need to break down the stereotypes first and get more women in the field. You proud of your older sister? Yeah, really proud. Aw, yeah. thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> That's adorable. So she said, coding is a piece of art to her. Mm. If we could make many more young girls think about it like that and open their eyes to it that way, this all comes down to education. It all comes down to our schools. And we have some, we have some students here from Dalton, I believe, as well. And uh, I just wonder, you know, you guys, you and Bill, have been pretty open about saying how difficult education reform has been mm -hmm. in this country, as we've all seen. What has to happen? Well, in terms of coding skills, we need to give young girls and women, no matter what their age, many pathways into coding. Because as she says, it is both, she thinks of it as kind of an art form. Mm -hmm. Most people will tell you it's like learning a language. I don't know about you, but, what, but for me, when you learn a new language, it is hard. <laughs> Up front, you know, leaning into that uncomfortable place of, oh, I don't have the verbs right, I can't conjugate, or I've got it, but now I have to speak it. Computer science is like that, but it's like learning a foreign language, but it's not undoable. Everybody, everybody in this room knows they could learn a foreign language, mm -hmm. right? If you put your mind to it, you can learn a foreign language. Guess what? Every single one of you, no matter what your age, your skin color, your personality, you can learn to code. It, that, it's like a language. And so giving women pathways in, giving young girls coding opportunities in school, giving them camps, when a girl shows up to that first CS 101 class in college, mm -hmm. So many things change whether she wants to be in it. If they are real world problems, not just a geeky math tech problem, but a real world problem, if she sees women in the course and associate professors or mentors or, or yeah. female professors teaching, if there are posters on the walls mm -hmm. of women who've been successful in coding, it changes her outlook on herself in the class. And so some of the places like University of Washington or Harvey Mudd or Carnegie Mellon or University of Maryland, they're doing all of those things to welcome women into CS101. You get past CS101, you're on your way. And so they're making it the most popular class on campus. As well, though, let's say a woman's already gone through eight or nine years of her career and she wants to learn to code. She wants to do something different. We need pathways in for that for her, too. You mentioned Harvey Mudd 
has an amazing president, as you know. Um, she has done so, so much on that front, and they've led. And you hope that we'll see it younger and younger and more and more universities leading in that way as well. Um, Girls Who Code, Mary Ellen is here, runs it right there. Reshma Sujani started it. Uh, and one thing that Reshma said to me recently is, our daughters and girls have to be fearless. You know, I, my biggest regret, I think, in my education, and you, you compare it to a language, is not taking Arabic. Mm. I, I wow. started at, at college here in New York City in 2001, right, after, right before 9-11. And I wanted to take Arabic, and I didn't because I was scared of getting a bad grade. It was the worst decision I've ever made. It would have been incredibly beneficial to my career. But I didn't do it because I was scared. I was scared of getting a bad grade. I mean, no one has seen my grades ever. Yeah, right. And so I just, you know. And then I tried to take classes while I was working, and it was just, I just so didn't I needed to be immersed. But my, my point is, do we all need to be a little bit more fearless and teach our daughters to be a little bit more fearless. Absolutely. It's about your mindset. And I love what Carol Dweck says, this growth mindset. I read that book and uh, eventually I got my husband to read it a couple years later and it changed everything about our parenting because that growth mindset, you don't want to be the, you shouldn't want to be the kid who you're already smart, you're already getting A's and yeah. then you try to hold on to that, that image of yourself. And so you're not willing to learn and me. push and grow. Me too, at times really? in my life, at times in my life, definitely. And I have to say, I think one of the best things about living with my husband in the same house is he has an absolute growth mindset. If I said to him, Bill, I want to learn Arabic, he, Arabic, he's like, great, how can I help you do that? <laughs> I mean, he, you know, I don't get that support necessarily in all areas from him, right. but in learning, absolutely. And that's what he says to our kids. And so when I tell my kids, I literally use Cheryl's words and with a little bit of a twist on it for a middle school or in a high school, I call it lean into the suck. Because that sucky lean place, into suck. lean into the suck. And that's okay. a kid, sorry, but it's a term that kids use, suck these days, things suck, right? Something that's hard for them is sucky. And so when they're uncomfortable, lean into that. So when you don't just feel like you can't quite do it, you can't quite go to that social event, you can't quite learn biology because maybe you're more of an English person. Yes, you can. Everybody can learn biology. Everybody can learn to code. Everybody can learn Arabic. It's a matter of putting your mind to it and deciding who do you need to support you. Are you a better online learner? Are you better with a teacher? Are you better one-on-one? -on -one? Are you better working with a friend? You know how I, how I got through computer science in how? college? I found a guy, a great guy, and we coded almost all of our projects together. And we would show up in the cafeteria and we would both on the first day be out of our minds. We'd sit there with our trays and just go, I have no idea how to do this. And he'd be like, me either. And we'd be freaked out. But then we'd go each spend some time. We'd break it up. I'd work on a piece. He'd work on a piece. We'd come back together and go, okay, I figured this out. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, it's like a puzzle. And by working together, he was my support and mm -hmm. I was his support. And guess what? When you get out of college in industry, you're mm -hmm. coding in teams. You're rarely coding alone. So I tell my kids, find the supports you need and use those supports. And that's how you lean into hard things and you work your way through that. Because that hard place is a place that you're actually learning. It's that uncomfortable place. Mm -hmm. And then you get through it and you get through the other side and that's what builds self-esteem. You know that's a headline now. Melinda Gates, lean, lean into, into the, the suck. Because everyone is going to read that. I don't that. know if I want that headline. Everyone but. is going to read <laughs> My that. My middle schooler might have been okay with it. <laughs> but I'm glad that you said a man because this is by no means, you know, there have been books written about this man down. This is by no means man down. This is how can we lift each other up. Women lifting men up, men 
lifting women up. Absolutely. And I think sometimes men, I will say, are better at faking it till they make it. I've seen a lot of men fake it in meetings on stuff they don't know that much about. But women are more like, hey, i got to really know this before I speak up. And um, so men have to be for women. They have to look at how do we help lift women up. They have to look at their unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. And women have to look at how do we help men, how do we support them on the teams, how do we not overdo the pieces like the note-taking in the meeting or taking on the extra additional unpaid tasks. And they have to look at their own bias and say, how am I supporting other men and women to speak up in meetings? So if a man is re-explaining, mansplaining something a woman's done, stop them in the meeting and say, that's okay. She already said that. Do Let's you do move that? on. Do you do that? I have done that, actually. Do I you, have done that. Do um, Susan Wojcicki, when she was sitting in this chair, talked about being interrupted, even as CEO, and how that's a form of sexism, and she says, I'm not done, stop interrupting me. Does that happen to you? That has happened to me, and I have to say, I've interrupted other people, Mm. men and women, Mm -hmm. and I have to stop doing Mm -hmm. that. And if I sit in a meeting, I'm a co-chair, if I sit in a meeting and my husband re-says something, I'll say, I'll say, yes, I already said that, let's move on. (laughs) I mean, we we have to, we do it to each other, right? I mean, so Bill and I do it to each other as well, and we have to stop and look at that um, and say, you know, that's not okay, or, yeah. You, your son, Rory, you have talked about and written about how, what a great headline, How I Raised a Feminist Son. Mm. Can you tell us about that? And look at that. Great photo. There he is. Um, the, um, the, there was a moment in Malawi yeah. together? We went to Malawi together. I took my oldest daughter when she was 15 and lived in the developing world for some time. And we had such a great experience. I took my son, Rory, when he was 15 and we lived in, in Malawi. Mm-hmm. And we had such an incredible experience. And some of the things that I saw, we were with a group uh, who was helping men and women see their biases in their home. The men and women in Malawi tend to eat separately, so the women cook all the meal. Then they give the best part to the men, and the men and the sons sit over here and eat, and the women and the rest of the younger children sit over here and eat. And what they didn't realize is that the calorie distribution was all going to the men and the older sons. And so when they started to have people look at this they, and, and families come together and eat together, they started to get at this unconscious bias. And the men were saying, are you kidding? My little kids ought to be eating more too. Anyway, I thought this was pretty unbelievable. And, and at the end of the trip, my son and I were reflecting and doing some reflective questions, and I was saying how unbelievable this is. And he was saying, Mom, this is just what's right. This is how society ought to be. And it just made me realize that I actually had raised a feminist son, that he just expected this stuff. And so when I told him I wanted to write this piece for his 18th birthday and I sent him a few bullet points, I was amazed how okay it was for him. Uh, Then I sent him an outline. He's like, yeah, it's all true. And then I sent him the full thing. He's like, looks great. Let's go with it. So I was like, okay. All right. My teenage son is signing off on On being a feminist. And I wouldn't have have called myself a feminist at age 18. I don't think I reflect. I know I didn't reflect on that question until I was in my Mm -hmm. early 30s and I had left Mm -hmm. Microsoft. You have called access to contraceptives one of the greatest anti-poverty innovations in history. You know 225 million women. 225 million women still do not have access to them. You are also, Melinda, a practicing Catholic. Mm. How do you reconcile the two? Well, I see women in the developing world. I have seen women, you know, I've known women who've died in childbirth. And that is unnecessary. And they die, some of those women, many of those women die because they aren't able to space the births of their baby. If you can space the births of your children, 
you are likely to be healthier, your child is likely to be healthier, and the family is likely to be wealthier. And I just think in this day and age, if I look at the social justice mission that I believe in still with the Catholic Church, we do a lot of work together that I grew up believing, I believe we should keep women and babies alive and not have them die for needless causes. I, and so I started speaking out on this issue and I realized I needed to be vocal about who I am, that I am a practicing Catholic, that I do use birth control. And I thought that also women in the United States needed to be, to be reminded a bit that when you see any woman in this room who is married and is working or a woman who walks by here in New York, it was the advent of the birth control pill that allowed us to go into the workforce, to be able to have economic means, to be able to space the births of our children, limit them if we wanted to, and be able to say, you know, maybe I want to have only two or three kids and I want to educate them and I want to work. All of those things, family planning, education, and having economic means in your hands, in your bank account, those are all tools that lead to empowerment for women. And if you don't have them, family planning, education, and economic means, you don't get on that cycle of empowerment. And women should be on that cycle of empowerment because women all over the world are the bedrock of society. And guess what? They're the ones who lift society up at the end of the day. You've been spending a lot of time in Washington mm. recently. Who are you talking to? <laughs> Everybody is probably the answer. Um, Bill and I have had many, many conversations with people inside the administration. Uh, we are focused at this point very much on Capitol Hill, though, on Congress, because it's up to Congress to make the budget. Um, and one of the reasons that's so important is to us is that foreign aid that the United States gives. So $34 billion is given worldwide in foreign aid. $12 billion comes from the United States. It is why we are seeing more nations move from low income to middle income. If you look at South Korea, used to be a low income country, they're middle income now. They actually give aid to the rest of the world. We put them on that path. So if Congress doesn't keep up foreign aid, all this progress the world has made of lifting people out of poverty, of creating middle income countries, that will start to slide backwards. And so we are counting on Congress and reminding them that there's great bipartisan support for foreign aid. Who's been most helpful to you in Congress? A number of people. And I want to keep that behind the scenes because across those are, parties? Across both parties. There are a whole host of people speaking out and doing the right thing because they know that this aid makes a difference. And I think sometimes we have a, a misnomer. We think, oh, well, the Democrats are for this and the Republicans aren't. No, if you go back and look at foreign aid, some of the biggest increases were under President George Bush. Yep. The president's emergency plan for AIDS relief was put in by George Bush. That was the biggest increase in foreign aid. People are alive in the developing world who wouldn't be able to be alive and who are being prevented from getting aid for AIDS because of that program and what came behind it with the Global Fund. So these things have good bipartisan support. And we, it's our job as a foundation with our many, many partners, some of whom are in this room, to remind Congress that those investments make an enormous difference in the world. Here's how your husband put it. In February, Bill said he's concerned that the America first rhetoric could threaten global security. Do you share the same concern as your husband on this front? Definitely. It, we are a global world. We aren't just America as an island anymore. All you have to look at is peace and security around the world. Or look at diseases, how they cross borders. Ebola showed up in our country. Sure. Started in West Africa, right? 
So we are a global community, and we need to talk about being a global community and about lifting everyone up. Yes, we have problems in our country. Yes, we still have too much poverty. We need to work on that, but we also need to work on the rest of the world. Because if we want peace and security, we need to make sure that everybody has the chance to grow up and live a healthy and a prosperous life. What is the number one thing? You said you've been in Washington a lot with the administration. I assume that means I know your husband has been to the White House. Have you been to the White House? Yes. Okay. What is the number one thing the Trump administration could do right now uh, to advance these causes and specifically your cause uh, for women and girls? To advance causes, they should put money behind them. If you believe in women, you fund things for women. You fund family planning. You fund women's health. The power is in the money. The way we've made progress in Africa and India and Bangladesh is that we funded things. Bangladesh, why have they have a lower population? Why are they starting, you know, eking by, getting on a road to prosperity? It's because we funded stuff like family planning. Africa is about to have the largest adolescent cohort coming through the continent in the next 15 years. That cohort of adolescents has either the opportunity to change their countries if we make the right investments, Mm -hmm. we help them with family planning, we help with education, they will lift up their continent if we make the right investments. Conversely, if we don't, it's going to fall backwards. And so to not make those investments in the way we look at it, when it's less than 1% of the U.S. budget, it just doesn't make any sense. We're going to have more security issues in our own country if we don't create peace and prosperity. People want to stay where they are if they can lift their family up and have an economy. They don't want to get up on the high seas and move to Europe or necessarily come to the United States. But if we don't keep making those investments, wow, we're going to have a, a problem that, in this country. That is, that is that is the risk? Absolutely. We talk, know it's the risk. You've talked about, in your words, a loss of U.S. leadership resulting in confusion and chaos. I mean, what do you hope? Look, we have seen some very hopeful signs of bipartisanship, by the way, in the last few weeks. Maybe something is changing in terms of Washington coming together a bit more. Um, how do you believe Washington and the administration can quell what you call this chaos and confusion you see on the global stage? They can fund foreign aid. And so and one of the things we're seeing come together, both in the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. is you know, the president put in, to be frank, zero dollars for family planning. He took a budget that was over 600 million and his budget says zero. So that tells me what he thinks about women, zero, right? And yet we know that's the thing that will lift women out of poverty. It says women aren't important, that family planning is not important, that you don't believe in this. But however, Congress, both the House and the Senate have put pockets of money in Mm -hmm. for family planning. It says to me, they know that making investments on behalf of women is important. It's what we have done for a Mm -hmm. long time as a country. Because we're a generous country and a country that cares about the right ethical issues, but also because it supports peace and prosperity. All the generals wrote a letter to President Trump saying, look, you've got to make these investments in health and we'll have to buy less bullets. That just makes sense. Um, so we're talking to Congress about that. All right. We're opening up for questions in one minute. Your, your buddy, Warren Buffett, who has given the largest donation uh, to the foundation and uh, has been a huge partner with you in this. 
he says, and he said for a long time, as you know, Melinda, the rich should pay more in taxes. I mean, I was looking back at his op-eds back in 2011. The, the New York Times headline op-ed was, Stop Coddling the Super Rich. Mm -hmm. So you talk about money and funding. Should the rich be paying more in taxes to fund this? We should. I mean, if you look at ACA, the rich, because of that act that went in place, the rich did start paying more money. I, I look at our tax bill and it's higher. Do I regret that? Not at all. Should people in our country have access to good quality health care? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Look at a poor woman or family who's trying to raise their kids and then one of them has a health crisis, the man, the woman, the child, my gosh, you want to keep them in destitute poverty? Don't give them health care. Mm. So do I, you know, the fact that we're paying several more percentage of tax because it allows more people to have good health care in our country, do I think that's the right thing? Yes. Now, it has some problems. It has some things that need to be fixed about it, even for that poor family. But it's the right thing to do, to have millions of Americans go without health insurance. That's not the country I want to live in. Questions from Melinda. Uh, Wes Moore, who is the new, Wes, if you want to stand up, the new CEO, a friend of mine for many years, but the yes. new CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, uh, which obviously works to alleviate poverty. Absolutely. Thank you. Hey, and, and Poppy, thank you for your, sure. for your leadership. Melinda, thank you for your personal example, for your partnership with Robin Hood. It means the world to us. And, and I ask this question um, as a son who was raised by a single mom. Mm. Um, I ask this question as a, uh, a father of a, of a brilliant six-year-old daughter who's very into STEM. Um, and I ask this question of, uh, of, of an anti-poverty uh, organization, of a poverty-fighting organization, where I couldn't agree with you more. If you want to address poverty, address sexism. If you want to address poverty, address racism. If you want to address poverty, address low expectations. Uh, what do you hope that the foundation community can do to be able to address those things to address poverty? And what are the things that you, that you hope that as a father of a young girl that I can do or the things that I don't do mm. when it comes to supporting her and helping her and achieving her greatest ambitions? Mm. Well, let me start with your latter question first. As a father, I hope that you can continue to say to your daughter all the way through, no matter what she faces, you can overcome every single barrier that gets put in front of you and that you can fulfill and reach your highest potential in whatever your dreams are. And I think we ought to be able to say that to every kid in this country. Um, no matter where they grow up, you can reach your highest potential. And I like to say to my kids that I hope your talents meet the world's greatest needs mm. and that you figure out the intersection of those two. Um, you know, when I look at across the United States, poverty writ large and what I think we need to do, I don't think we have all the answers yet. And so it's been since the Lyndon Johnson administration since we had a commission on poverty. And so one of the things we've done um, is put together um, a mobility from poverty partnership. It's not ours as a foundation, it's a public good. We brought in together practitioners, academics, uh, people from think tanks, businesses, to really look at this poverty question writ large across the United States. And, and they, they still haven't come out with their final findings, which they will do, but we're already getting other foundations involved looking at this and looking at the various elements of poverty, hoping that different foundations will take on different pieces with the government. Uh, as you know, there's some great foundations who are really starting to talk, tackle the criminal justice system and the government's really following, which is great. But one of the findings that's already come out of this uh, partnership is that where you matter lives that your zip code of where you're born and where you're living at age 10 actually has a profound um, 
effect on your chances of getting out of poverty in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we know that poverty is very, very sticky. And if you grow up in certain zip codes, Mm -hmm. because the schools aren't as good, there aren't as many community supports, there isn't a great rec center, you don't have other social protection factors, your chance of getting out of poverty is not high. And so I think when this final data comes out, we then need to look at what elements and building blocks we need to put in into those communities to make sure kids in those communities actually have the chance of getting out of poverty. And so the answers are still yet to come, but I'm looking really forward to this being out in the public space and then having people come together to figure out what are innovative solutions. You all have been involved in this for a while in New York City. I think you've got some elements of it right. And I think there'll be places that others will look to say, okay, what elements, you know, have happened in, you know, some of the work Robin Hood and others have done, some of the work going on in Houston. How do we take those to our cities and communities? Because even when I look at just Seattle and the surrounding area, the map is unbelievable about where you live in the inside of that King County zip code that will determine whether you have a chance yeah. of getting that job. And long-term. Seattle's trying to figure it out with the minimum wage debate and what you know what works and what are, public transport. I mean, there's a whole host yeah. of things. You know, education, et cetera. Of course. Other questions? Yes, right here. If you could just tell us. Hi, I'm Heather Simpson, the Chief Program Officer of Room to Read, and we do girls' education and literacy globally. We would lo- I would love to hear your thoughts on how we can do better to generate evidence, what stories can we help tell to really bring a better understanding in this country as well as outside of the important investment in girls' education and that transformative power that it has to increase this global understanding of our global community. Yeah, thanks. I think Rumored Reed is fantastic. As you know, John Wood and I were worked together at Microsoft. I was thrilled when he started this. And he wrote the book. And he wrote his book. Which is Microsoft to change the world. Which has been great. And um, so there's an event going on tomorrow, actually, at the UN around girls' education. And the thing that is so different when I go to the UN today, even versus five years ago, is now... Presidents and prime ministers are talking about girls' education, the importance of it. They know that educating this adolescent cohort, quality education, keeping them in schools. So anything Room to Read or any of the other partners who work in literacy for boys and girls, I completely agree. The stories of girls, but then the data, the data and the trajectory of, okay, I kept a girl in school a year longer. I kept her in school two years longer, three years longer. Here's their trajectory of her life. And all the data points you have from the places that you've set up these literacy programs, we need that great data. Because one of the things we don't do for girls and women is collect data. And without data, the world doesn't fund things. They don't know how to fund things. And if you don't fund things, you don't actually have the tools to help women lift themselves up out of poverty. So data and stories, data and stories, data Mm. and stories. One final question before we have to go right here. Yes. Thank you. I'm I'm Susan McPherson. I run a social impact consultancy. I was a Seattle native for, or lived in Seattle for years. But over the last three years, we've seen business get in front of major kind of social impact issues, LGBTQ, immigration, climate change, um, even starting to get in front of Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, where is business's voice on women's reproductive, access to women's reproductive health care, and how can we get them to be standing up for that? That's a great, I love this question, question, Susan. Um, because you're right, I think as, as society gets more fragmented and we're seeing less 
you know, less people going to church or in their communities. They're asking their businesses to do things. Like what millennials are asking businesses to do now around, as you say, their supply chains, LGBTQ, paid family medical leave. So I haven't actually thought about what women should, what businesses should do on women's reproductive rights. We know it's important to them because if women didn't have access to, to family planning tools, they wouldn't be able to work, right? They'd be leaving the workforce all the time or not be in it. So I need to ponder that a little bit, but I think it's a great place to be because it's a great question to think about because in the United States, we know we believe in this, but we don't actually speak up about contraceptives because we just use them. And I think most people don't understand that around the world, 225 million women still want mm. access. So I'm going to ponder that question. I love coming to a breakfast like this where I get new thought ideas. And anybody that has ideas around them, send them my way, please. So maybe you'll get a contributing line to her next op-ed at the bottom. <laughs> uh, before we wrap up, uh, final question to you. This is a highly personal mission for you and one that you are now a few years deeply into. What do you want? Because we started this by saying this is about how I want to leave the world. Mm. So what do you want your three children and what do you want Bill to say about you, to think about you when your life's work is done? I want them to be able to say she did absolutely everything that she could to make sure that women all over the globe were more empowered. That you know, she didn't turn her back on the hard issues, the things that were hard to speak about or talk about or didn't want to be brought up. And that, that she helped in some way, you know, by using her voice or her access to resources, to lift women up everywhere. And uh, if I have one piece of that, I think it takes many, many, many drops in the bucket to make change for women. So I think I'm, to be honest, one little drop in the bucket. But if my drop is, you know, one of the drops or a slightly bigger drop by the end of my life, uh, and I've used myself up doing that, then I think I will have done my job. Melinda Gates, thank you for all you've done and continue to do. We Thanks, Poppy. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a fan of the show, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. Let us know how we're doing. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.